Well done. Good morning. Good morning. There we go. We're in Hebrews 2, 5 through 18 this morning. Uh, let me pray real quick and, and we'll jump right into it. Lord, we're thankful for our time this morning. We're thankful that uh, we know that your word is alive. And so it is doing its work. And we know that your word never returns void. So there's something that each of us have, have to gain by humbling ourselves underneath the word that you've breathed out for us. We know it's profitable and beneficial and good for reproof and correction. And so whatever it is that we're needing this morning, we entrust this time to you, that you would speak to us in our hearts and in our minds um, to know uh, what it is we need to learn about ourselves and about you. And we love you, Lord, and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. General Ulysses S. Grant at one point had his troops arrayed uh, to where they were... Um, blocking this particular road, and he, he didn't have the information uh, of what was going on ahead of him. He just felt like it was maybe a good idea to be in this spot, and he became impatient, and after a few days, he finally said, all right, troops, let's withdraw. Let's move over to this area right here. What he didn't know was that that road, in, in being where they were, they were blocking the enemy troops, and the enemy troops had no exit and that was, a, for, as far as war and battle goes, that's a really good strategy to, to not leave your enemy any kind of an exit or foothold. But when he withdrew all of his troops, it was just like, well, here you go, enemies. Let's give you a nice road for all of you to, to escape on. And in, in reflecting on it in his journal, uh, he wrote the statement, it's easy to make poor decisions with inadequate information. It's easy to make poor decisions with inadequate information. And I thought about that quote as I was preparing the sermon here in, in, in Hebrews because it seems like that's the goal of the writer of Hebrews. We do not want you to make poor decisions such as the kind that would cause you to stray from your salvation, to drift from your salvation because of inadequate information. And in fact, if you read through the book of Hebrews, which we're going to be preaching through it for a while, there's no possible way for inadequate information about your salvation and your Savior to be a thing that makes you make poor decisions. It's like he's wanting to make it as clear as possible because as, as we heard from Pastor Lance last week, that the encouragement is pay much closer attention to your salvation. We have to understand the many facets of our salvation, the details of it, to make sure that we don't drift. In verse 5 of chapter 2, it says, For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. So right out of the gate, we see another angel contrast. Jesus has been you know, explained as being better than angels in a lot of different ways, and now he's, he's kind of shifting it to us, and, and the writer of Hebrews is saying, hey, your salvation has to do with something that's to come, and the, the time that's to come was not subjected to angels, but rather to you. Specifically, it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come of which we are speaking. And so this connects us to where our set of verses this week connect to the set of verses last week. When we speak of salvation, at least part of what we're talking about is the world to come. When we speak of salvation that you're not to drift from, that you're to pay more closer attention to, when he says, if it, was not subjected to, if it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come of which we are speaking, it means when we're speaking of your salvation, at least in part, we're speaking of the world to come. So our first point of the morning are that there are at least two components to our salvation, now and forever. 
So in, in helping us to not neglect our salvation, we have to know that there's at least two components. Now, this is the life you're living as you look around. How does my salvation in Christ affect what's going on here? And then forever, there's a plan that the Lord has. Now, I have the privilege of teaching uh, the fifth and sixth graders. Uh, Jackson's part of that, that class. Any Team Howard kids in here? There, there were a lot in the last, in the last one. There's a few. Yeah, I see you, Tucker. All right, there we go. Good. No, okay, there's a few. So we're, going, we're called Team Howard because we're using Howard Hendricks' book, Living by the Book, as, as a way to, to understand how to study the Word of God. And we, we have learned that most of your time is spent in observation just asking the question, what do I see? And when you're looking for what you see, what you, some, you're looking for also things that are emphasized. And a lot of times things are emphasized through repetition. Let me say that again. A lot of things are emphasized through repetition. They're emphasized repetition. So I want to, I'm going to read through this text and I want to see just if you, if you see any repeated words. Because this, this is talking about our salvation. We're trying to understand it, right? So are, are there any repeated words that help us to understand what we mean when we're talk, talking about our salvation? For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere, what is man that you are mindful of him? and the son of man that you care for him. It's talking about us. You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside of his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. Do you, do you see any, there any hints on the, the repeated words? Subjected, subjection, subjection, subjection. I think we tried to help out. Do we have any? Yep, yeah, they're, they're up there. You can see them all in subjection. And so um, the author goes straight to Psalm 8. The author goes straight to Psalm 8 to explain our, our salvation in terms of subjection, of being, everything being placed under the control of another. So subjection is being placed under the control of another. So if the world to come is in subjection to us, there's this sense that there's this reality that part of our salvation is everything being in subjected, subjection to us, not only that, but nothing is outside of our control. So point number two of the morning is God's plan for everything. God's plan is for everything to be placed under the control of us. How's that going? How do y'all feel about that? Have y'all had the kind of week where you just make a decision, it was awesome, it's never one step forward, two step back, everything goes good, you fix something and then it never breaks again. How's, how's this going? Everything in subjection. This is a really remarkable consideration. Part of God's plan for our salvation, which we're not to drift from, part of the salvation for his children is for nothing to be left outside of our control. In his infinite wisdom, he desires for us to reign and rule over this world to be able to exercise dominion. I think maybe the closest we get to it is Alexa, right? Alexa, play my favorite song. Boom. Your favorite song's playing and you're like, Dominion. Or you say, Alexa, turn the lights off. Now, Alexa, turn them back on, but only to 70%. Boom. Dominion, right? And now everyone who's listening online, their lights are going on and off in their house and their music's doing weird stuff. But like there, there's, there's a sense of you just, you just kind of say it 
and then it happens. I used to have a coworker. Uh, we had a, a thin wall between our offices, and so we knew each other's vices and, and problems because of that thin wall. And one of the things that he, he would often do, and it just absolutely cracked me up, is he would get into verbal arguments with Siri. And it was hilarious. So as a good friend, I would record them. I don't have the recording this morning. I couldn't find them. But th there's some really good ones. And it'd be something like, Siri, call wife. Siri's like, looking up life on the internet. And he's like, no, 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 call wife. It's like calling Will. No, no, no. And then Will's like, hello. And he's like, no, Siri's stupid. I wasn't calling you. I was trying to call my wife. Okay, bye. Will hangs up. But it's like, it was this silly argument where you're trying to exercise dominion by telling Siri to help you with something, and it just wouldn't work out. It, it just, it just would, would, would blow up in his face all the time. I wanted to have like a, like a funny video that we made where it was like, like, reconciling, like dealing with the conflict resolution between him and Siri. It was pretty funny. Um, so that, that's probably, you know, just to be able to speak something, right? And it happened. That, that, that feels like dominion and that feels like control. As we talk about these words, it sounds like the words spoken to Adam and Eve to go and be fruitful and to multiply and to fill the earth and to exercise dominion over it. It sounds really wonderful. I mean, really, as you sit here this morning, what, is it, what would it be like to have dominion over sickness, over the weather, which just got crazy in the last, like, hour, dropped, like, 20 degrees, to, to have dominion over the weather? It's like, it's too cold. Up, up, right there. Like, really? To have dominion over our resources and money? If you don't tell your money where to go, it usually just goes away. Have resources over our time, same way, or to have uh, dominion over our time, or, or dominion even over, over death. But, but we see in these verses that there's, there's one problem. The last part of verse 8 says, at present, we do not see everything in subjection to mankind. When you look around, you don't, there's this promise, it's a big deal, it has to do with our salvation, but when you look around, it's like, but that's, that's not what we see right now. There's a tension that's created. Because when you look around, a lot of times what you see is sadness, loss, pandemics, tornadoes, flooding, lawlessness increasing, the love of many growing cold. We have a term now that we didn't have too many years ago called doom scrolling. Does anyone know what that is? You probably figured it out. Doom scrolling, where you get your phone and you're like, what's going on in the world? Oh, this is encouraging. And you just keep scrolling and there's still something bad to say, something somewhere that's happening that's negative. And, and like, like at one point in my life, I had to stop watching the news before I went to bed. So I was like, this is the most depressing way to end the day is by watching the news. There's all these bad things happening. I got no control over it. It's like, thanks for the reminder, sweet dreams, right? It just, it's like it doesn't, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Um, doom scrolling. I don't, I don't know if you've noticed this, if you do watch the news, but I've noticed a pattern to where, let's say like all the things that are wrong and this happened and there's this corruption over here and then there's this horrible storm over here and then there's pandemic over here. And then it's like, hey, in closing, look at these puppies and children smiling, and they always end the news on this, like, like really direct high note that is nothing like what the last 30 minutes or so 
words, like we're going to trick them into coming back next time by showing them some puppies and happy children, right? And so doom scrolling. So we have salvation now. But it doesn't look like the subjection part is working, if you're paying attention. It seems like maybe the world is exercising dominion over us. So this is part of our salvation, part of God's plan for us. But you look around, it's like right now, it doesn't seem like it's working. And, and I think it brings us to our, point, our, our third point of the morning, which if, if you're looking at all these details, what you kind of come out with is you're more likely to drift from your salvation if you think it's only about this life. You are more likely to drift from your salvation if you think it is only about this life. Another way to say that is you are more likely to drift from your salvation if you don't have an eternal perspective. An eternal perspective is part of what we gain uh, in Christ. But if we don't have that and all we see is what's going on right now, it can seem like maybe things don't add up. Viewing our faith and our salvation as only impacting us now can lead to feelings of meaninglessness. You ever read through the book of Ecclesiastes? That joker needs a hug in a bad way. He, he, meaningless, meaningless, everything is meaningless. I put on my hand all these things. You know what I found out? Meaningless, doesn't matter. And you're like, man, this dude's having a bad day. But if you're having a bad day, you're reading that like, yup, 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 check, I agree. Yup, this guy's brilliant, right? And, and meaninglessness can creep in if, if you think that all that there is is this right now. Your salvation will drift if you're looking around and you're thinking, I just thought I had to like name it and claim it and things would be good and nothing's going to go bad. And, it, and when that doesn't work, it creates like a crisis and it creates these feelings of meaninglessness and inevitably feelings of meaninglessness give way to feelings of hopelessness. We have the hope of glory. We have our Lord who we are anticipating we will spend eternity with, but if we lose sight of that, the meaninglessness kind of eats away at our souls and it gives way to hopelessness. We've placed our faith in Jesus, something bad happens to us or someone we love, and we say things like, what's the point? I tried, what's the point? Or why do good things happen, or why do bad things happen to good people? You should ask why do good things happen to bad people. We're all sinners who've fallen short of the glory of God. We can find ourselves in a place where we are we are consumed with the present, and the result is that the present is consuming us. The hope of glory has turned into the fog of meaninglessness. So if I ended the sermon there, you'd all be very appreciative of the encouragement this morning, but thankfully, it, that's not all we see when we look around, right? It's easy to see the bad stuff. It's easy to focus on what's wrong, but it's not all that we see. Look at verse 9. What else do we see? But we see him. What a sweet verse. <laughs> but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. For it was indeed fitting that he for whom and by whom all things exist and bringing many sons to glory. God wants a family. He's bringing many sons and daughters to glory, and he's putting his son in charge of this in a significant way. It was fitting that God, for whom and by all things exist, and bringing many sons to glory, should make Jesus, the founder of our salvation, perfect through suffering. 
we see him. It's not all doom and gloom. But we have to, we have to know how he is revealing himself. We have to know what is true and lovely and commendable and excellent and worthy of praise. And we set our minds on those things and it helps when we see him. It's, it's, it's cool. This is the first time in the book of Hebrews that Jesus is mentioned by name. Like we, we've gone, we've, the whole first chapter is dedicated to, to how he's better than the angels and better and better in so many ways. But this is the first time he's mentioned by name. It's like a big, fancy, timely entrance, right? Where he's like, um, we have a promise from God that seems like it's not being fulfilled. We have a tension that's created. We have a, a, what might be a problem and we're in need of a solution. And then boom, Jesus. We look to Jesus. We see him. And when we look to him, what do we see? Well, it's interesting because it says the same thing about Jesus as it said for, about us in the previous verses. It says, we see that for a little while he was made lower than the angels. Now just consider that. Consider the writer of Hebrews has gone to great lengths to explain how much better Jesus is than angels. Through angels, there were a lot of things that were spoken th th for thousands of years. But in Jesus, there's a finality to the word of God. There's nothing that comes after the word of God. There's no other angels. There's no other Jesus. It is final. So anything that's said from here on out is just reiterating and emphasizing and stating clearly over and over again in as many ways as possible the truth about the gospel. There's nothing left. And so it's been stated in a big way that Jesus is better than angels. And we see that for a little while, he was made lower than the angels. Like that makes sense for us, but how does it make sense for Jesus? And what you see is this path that we're, we're to walk. You see Jesus coming in and walking it before we do. And you see it again in the next verse. We see that he was crowned with glory and honor, just like it was said of us, but we're not yet crowned with the glory and honor in this totally, completely fulfilled final way, but Jesus is. He's seated at the right hand of God. And then it changes a little. He, he fulfills what we have yet to experience. He walks that path before us so that we can walk it with him. But then there's a unique role as well. It says Jesus experienced the suffering of death. It says Jesus, by God's grace toward us, tasted death for everyone. We don't taste death. We die. You, you may have had like a near-death experience, but it was near. You didn't taste death. Why? The wages of sin is death. So if you have sinned, you don't taste death, you die. Only one who is sinless can taste death and not die, and that is what Jesus has done. That is the essence of the gospel. He emptied himself and became obedient to the point of death on a cross. He was buried, but he did not stay buried. On the third day, he vacated the grave, and he conquered death. He only tasted it. Could not hold him down. There's an old song, Death Could Not Hold Him Down, for he is risen. It's one of my favorites. I feel like you can just sing it over and over. Death could not hold him down. The good news of the gospel is that Jesus is risen. Like we say that flippantly, but he conquered death. He tasted it for us, and he didn't only conquer his death, but the death of all who would put their faith in him for the forgiveness of their sins. One of my, if I'm preaching a funeral, one of my favorite things to be able to call people's attention to is that Jesus didn't just conquer his own death, but if this person whose body is dead, who we are burying in the ground, their soul is eternal, and if they've put their faith in Jesus, he's conquered their death too. Oh, death, where is your sting? That is the work of our Lord. And the next verse explains how God achieves all of this. And this is where we're going we're gonna to just dig in as, as hard as we can for the next few minutes to really understand how God achieves this. 
Point number four, it was fitting for God to make Jesus perfect through suffering. Verse 10 says, for it was indeed fitting that he, God, for whom and by all things exist, and and all the wisdom that he has in bringing many sons to glory, he's making a family. There's this moment where Jesus will not be ashamed to call you brother, as it says here in the next few verses, but it was in, in fitting to the Father that he should make the founder of our salvation, Jesus, perfect through suffering. Now, I don't know about you, but I've got a number of questions that jump in my head when I hear that Jesus is made perfect through suffering. You tracking with me? That, that is, that's a hard thing to just quickly sort of wrap your head around, right? It can be confusing. It, it, it causes me to ask questions like, how can one who is all-knowing learn? Right? How do you learn something when you're all-knowing? I would assume all-knowing means you're learnt with a T. Uh, you're learned up. Like, how, how does that work? Or how can one who is perfect be perfected? You would assume that perfection is there, so how, how is he being perfected, particularly through suffering, if he was already perfect? How does this work? The words seem to not work right when we're applying them to Jesus. It makes sense for us, but how does it work when we're applying it to Jesus and it can be confusing? Sometimes when a particular piece of scripture is confusing, we have to just take a minute to go back to what we know. You kind of zoom out a little bit. For example, we know that Jesus is perfect, right? Show of hands, we all agree that Jesus is perfect. All right, about half of y'all believe Jesus is perfect. The other half are getting learnt. Um, we know that Jesus is perfect. So we zoom out. He, he has no imperfection. There's, there's no way for him to be improved upon or his love to be improved upon. So this must mean that this text means something other than the imperfect Jesus suffered in order to be made perfect. That statement would be heresy. The imperfect Jesus suffered in order to be made perfect. So that's not what we're dealing with. So we can take that off the table. So what are we talking about? When, you're, when, you're, when you find a piece of scripture that you're like, man, ah, this is hard. Scripture helps to define scripture, and it's really cool because you have like this one piece that's confusing, and then you're, the best place to look is like right around that piece. And, and, and a lot of times it's, it's best to try to even stay within the book. Like what does it say in the other parts of Hebrews that might help me to understand Jesus being made perfect through suffering? And you don't have to go far. You get to Hebrews 5, 8 through 9, and it says this. So think about how this connects to Jesus being made perfect through suffering. Although he was a son He learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who believe him. Jesus learned obedience through what he suffered. All right? I don't know if that's a lot clearer, but we're making progress. Jesus learned obedience through what he suffered. Jesus was perfected through suffering. And if you connect the two, he was perfected through suffering because through the suffering, he learned obedience. Understand this, we have to zoom out even more. Inasmuch as Jesus has never suffered, he has also never been tested before he came to earth. Inasmuch as he had not suffered, he had not been tested. So I want you all to think about a sports team, right? Just, we'll just think about a sports team. Let's uh, go with football, right? And let's say you have like an example on paper. You're looking at a guy on paper and you're like, man, by all accounts, this is our guy. 
By, you could say that about Jesus. By all accounts, this, he's going to come to earth, and I, by all accounts, he will always obey the Father. He will never sin. But it hadn't happened yet, right? So with a sports team, you could be like, you know what, this, this is our quarterback, right? And by all accounts, it really looks like this is the guy who's going to take us to the Super Bowl. This is the guy who can make really clutch plays in the moment of the, the needed plays to be really clutch. And, and then, you, then he's tested. And he goes in. And imagine that quarterback that they looked at and they thought he was just tried and true. He's, he's going to take us all the way in some really important, pivotal moments of some really games. What if that quarterback just threw like one interception after another interception after another interception, just, just hypothetically speaking. Like, like you're the one who makes the big decision to take us to the big game, but before you even got really all that close, we're just going to throw it to the other team again. In as much as that guy would do that, he's not, he's not perfected through the opportunity. It was, it was proven that he was found lacking, Right? It was like he was, when he was battle-tested, he wasn't really ready for battle, right? That's one way you might think of it. And so, so it's like, well, it all looked good on paper, but in the end, it, it didn't really play out. So anyway, all hypothetical. Move from the Cowboys back to the Bible. Let's go. <laughs> so before coming to earth, Jesus had not been tested, right? He only knew sinless fellowship with God outside of time. He had never been tempted. He had never experienced those trying moments in the flesh where he might be willing to go against God's will. Looks good on paper. I think he's going to do it. But he hadn't done it, right? So there, there's, there's these moments where he has not been tempted to go against God's will simply for the sake of some temporary relief in this world. He had not learned obedience by being tempted toward disobedience, even if it was for enjoyment or for relief. I want you to consider also, this is the first time we've ever had someone come from the presence of God the Father and dwell in human form. That's not a, a thing that we're like, oh, well, here comes another one. He was with the Father, now he took on human form. God, completely God, greater than the angels took on human. That doesn't happen a lot. This is a one-time deal, right? And so we, we have someone who came and dwelt among us in Christ who was previously with God the Father outside of time. Time's in a, a created thing, and one day it will melt back into eternity and there will be a new heavens and a new earth that has a whole lot to do with your salvation, so pay attention. It's the only time we've had someone come from the presence of God the Father and dwell with us in human form. For Jesus to be perfected was for Jesus to be tested. That's what we're talking about here. We're not taking an imperfect Jesus and making him perfect. We're saying he's tested. He went through what, some of what we go through and more. Just consider he had never been in the womb one of those things we all have in common as we sit here this morning. There was one point we were in the womb. He'd never been in the womb. He had never experienced hunger. He had never wrestled with the challenges of remaining faithful in a community or a culture that had forsaken God. He had never been in a scenario where someone else's words provoked him to anger or doubt or fear or jealousy. He had never been bullied. He'd never been made to feel unappreciated in his role or his job. He had never worked soil that would push back with thorns and rocks and sweat. He had never been tempted to provoke his children to anger because they had been unruly and defiant that day. 
He had never been tempted to numb himself with alcohol or food or anything else as a means of hiding from the feelings of futility that can come from hard days. He had never, like Esau, been in a situation where he just wants what he wants when he wants it, where he might give way to the solicitations of the flesh without regard to eternal consequences. He had never been brokenhearted. He had never experienced cravings. I have found that there is a great frustration in sharing your struggles with someone, and they respond with phrases like, well, now you know how I feel. Welcome to my world. Anybody experience that? Like, it's not like I've been guilty of it and I've repented because in those moments you're showing no empathy and you're just sort of making something about you and you're not trying to even understand how the person is feeling. I find this happens a lot with new parents where you have the newborn, which means you have no sleep, right? And so new parents with a newborn, a lot of times they're like just pouring their hearts out about just how tired they are. Like, I'm so tired, I know sleep is good, but I don't remember how to get it for more than like an hour at a time, and especially mamas, and and you just get really tired and really exhausted, and then you talk to someone who maybe they've had kids, or they have a few kids, or maybe it's your parents, and and they're like empty nesters now, and you're like, I'm just tired. I'm just, I'm just wore out. Like, like, I find like, like I'm so tired that sometimes I'm burping a baby that's like not there. It's just like muscle memory, and I and I'm like, where's the baby? And 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 you, and you can make bottles while you're half asleep, and all those kinds of things. Like it's just an exhaustion. And a lot of times they'll say to other families maybe that that have kids or or their parents like I, I'm just I'm just struggling. And then you get the response, Welcome to our world. You're like, I wanna I wanna throat punch you when you talk to me like that. Because this is, this is hard and you're just like not even trying to see what I'm, what I'm struggling with. It is difficult to share your struggles with someone and they respond like that because often what you're really wondering is, I'm not sure you actually do know how I feel right now. I'm not sure you're identifying with me at all right now. I'm not sure you know my internal struggle I'm going through. I'm not sure you know what thoughts I'm battling right now. This is hard. And here's what I want us to see this morning. If Jesus had not been perfected through suffering, if he had not learned obedience through what he suffered, if he had not left the Father's side from where he had dwelled in all perfection outside of time, if he had not done those things and come to our world and taken on flesh and experienced struggle and experienced temptation, we might be tempted to look to Jesus and say, no, you don't know how I feel. Y'all feel that? You might be tempted to look at Jesus and say, no, we're not the same. You don't know how I feel. You don't connect with me. You and I are not the same. I've never dwelled sinlessly with God, and you have only dwelled sinlessly with God. You have not faced loss heartache, grief, confusion, temptation, fatigue, or anxiety. You don't know how I feel, but church, he does. That's, the po- that's a big point of this passage. He can help you in your temptation because he gets it. He experienced the kind of anxiety in Gethsemane where he cried tears of blood. He gets it. He gets you. In tasting death for us, he experienced all the emotions that would lead to a prayer to his father saying, if it is at all possible, let this cup pass from me. It's like saying to his father, dad, father, I'm, uh, if there's any other way for this to happen, 
make it to where I don't have to drink this cup, where I don't have to take the wrath of, that you have for everybody onto myself, if there's any other way. But there was no other way. According to the Father, it was fitting that he would be perfected through suffering. All other attempts would not be fitting. In the wisdom of the Father, they wouldn't make sense. So our fifth point of the morning is that Jesus gets you. Be encouraged. That might feel small, but I encourage you to dwell on it. Think about it. He understands you. He understands your struggles. He understands what you have faced. He understands what it's like to be in the flesh and to be tempted, which leads to our last point of the morning is that Jesus' obedience proves the worth and the glory of God. Jesus' obedience proves the worth and the glory of God. How? Well, think of it this way. Jesus is a member of the Trinity, experienced perfect unity, described biblically as a dance. It's perichoresis. It's like the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Who's doing what? Was that the Father or the Son? And it's like, yes. It was, yes. They, they, like, it's just this blur because they have such unity. Experience that unity. He knows the Father. He knows God's ways. He knows God's thoughts and intentions. He knows God's eternal plans. He knows God's love and tenderness and wisdom and glory. Jesus knows the joy of obedience, the fulfillment of obedience. And at every opportunity where Jesus could have chosen disobedience, you could throw yourself off the cross, bring yourself down, call, call someone down to feed you. I'll give you all the land. Like at any opportunity that he had to be disobedient to his father, Jesus would look to his father and he would look to the temptation toward disobedience and every single time he said, not worth it. Not worth it. He would would see the temporary relief for the pleasure of the world that he could get from maybe just disobeying the Father. And every single time he would say, not worth it, because he would look back to the Father and say, the the wonder, the worth, the hope of glory that I'm leading many sons to glory in is so worth it that this over here is not. And he always said no to disobedience, not worth it every single time. In doing so, he proves the worth and the glory of God in a way that none of us could do. It reveals to us something about our salvation that keeps us from drifting because when we are tempted, he can help us. And one of the ways he helps us is by saying, if you look to your father, the hope of glory, it, this doesn't compare. This is not worth it. Persevere to the end. That's the message throughout the, the book of Hebrews. Christ's sacrifice achieves for us the reality mentioned at the beginning of this passage because our sins are forgiven. We will eternally reign and rule with Christ in a new heavens and a new earth. That's what will be accomplished We'll be a family. Jesus will not be ashamed to call us brother with nothing outside of our control and everything in subjection to us and Jesus. As you fight to not drift from your great salvation, look to Jesus. Keep looking to Jesus. He understands you, and as it says in our last verse this morning, he, he's able to help those who are being tempted. Lord, we are thankful for our time this morning. We humble ourselves before you as we prepare to take the supper. Pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.